Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Lots to talk about today. Lots to talk about today. I'm so excited to be back. Um, and uh, before we jump in, as usual, what's going on? How is it? Um, what's moving and shaking? Holy Week approaches. Yeah, I was like, you're about to face Holy Week. Like, Holy Week on, approaches. Man. That's right. Yeah. Super Bowl, yeah. baby. This will likely Bowl. come out in in Holy Week. When RJ, uh, we, we never never record during that week. Uh, of course, we before that, I'm more excited that my University of Connecticut Huskies have once again made the Final Four, and they are the favorites to win the NCAA Men's Basketball Championships. Mm. So looking forward to that. And I'm most excited that my son Spencer received admission to Rice University, where one Sarah, which where one Sarah Condon serves as campus. I mean, that's hu- that's mission. It's, so, it's a very hard school to get into. Yeah. It's major that he got in there. So I got an owl and a longhorn. Thank you very owl. much. I'm yeah, so, I know. I'm just I know. It's pretty. So it's, so it's been a good. It's so. been a good week in the Heyman household. Well, how, how are you guys doing? What's up, Sarah? Yeah, we're we're at that point in the semester where it feels like everything is rushing by. So, um, but it's really, you know, it's been really sweet. We're like trying out new stuff kind of constantly and that's uh that's exciting to me and um yeah, we're we're good. Kids are Do you, do you sort of get like prepared to just not see Josh for a week? Is that what happens or do you feel yeah, like Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably fair. Yeah, for Holy Week, that's that's definitely. Yeah, you just kind of buckle up to know that they're not going to be there. I don't go so far as to what I see in uh secret clergy spouse forums, which do exist. Um <laughs> where Lord Jamie Sarah. needs Jamie Lord. needs to get in there. Why she does not, trust <laughs> me. Where she should have avoided it at all costs. Uh <laughs> It's like it's like really crazy intense complaining or it's like really unsubtle bragging. Those are the two, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um and so yeah, people sometimes refer to themselves as Holy Week widows, which oh, okay. is not my practice since I know real widows and uh <laughs> yeah, it's different. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, army army wives army spouses like they're just sort of right right yeah. i was like you know he's 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 back pr- present with us in a week so um yeah he but shall be, be resurrected i mean i love holy week so i'm like super excited like i've already like over volunteered my kids to acolyte so uh you know i'm it'll be great oh cool i yeah. can't wait to, i can't wait to see the evidence and i'm sure yeah. the, the the rj Heyman glory story will just um completely keep the train on is coming just, triumph as, yep. as our Lord moves from triumph to crucifixion, R.J. Heyman will move from crucifixion uh, right back to triumph. Or triumph to triumph. I think strength to strength, <laughs> strength, is, the, to strength. Is, is how they talk about He's it. He's just going to uh-huh. come in on like uh-huh. a surfboard on Easter morning. Uh-huh. Just like, he hath arisen. <laughs> Watch out. I'll Watch send you out. pictures from the beach. 
Yeah. I mean, if I hadn't seen RJ at at certain low ebbs in my life, I would really resent him. But right now, I'm just great. I'm just so happy for him. Yeah, I would really resent RJ, but I'm like, I I know it's I know it's been a rough go. (laughs) My success is short lived. I'm going to find a way to blow it. Don't worry. It's all going to come crashing down. Mm. <laughs> well, we're we're actually we're the last of you guys, I guess, to go on spring break, and that's happening mm. for us. And um, it's just uh, a million miles a minute. I feel like I'm entering the phase of parenthood where I'm actually a taxi cab. You know, I'm 100%, just hundred percent. I've got yeah. you know three concurrent soccer practices yeah. that are somehow. I don't know what's going on by the end yeah. of this. I, I just, every night, it really is a day by day. Lord, uh, what do you have for me today? And does <laughs> yes. it involve four or five different games that may or may not get moved uh, the venue or time of at any point? Um, but, you know, I, I tell myself I will miss these years, that there are some very exciting uh, things happening. And, and you know, the look on my, uh, my son, that. my son was playing his first ever flag football game. And he, he, he scored two touchdowns. Nice. And, uh, you know, the look on his face was 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 kind of worth it i gotta that's say that's awesome pure joy pure that's joy awesome. and, and then in the next game they got uh crushed and didn't score once so <laughs> it, it was it was it was like rj Heyman's ministry career <laughs> it's a metaphor yeah i'm driving well, to missouri city this afternoon with a car full of boys to play in a tennis match so yeah we're to be clear you know, missouri city is a city in texas it is so. a city in texas. missouri city that's I was right. going to say, is that yes. like an eight-hour drive or like a <laughs> yeah. thirty-minute drive? I'm it's like you clear. are committed, Sarah. Driving to Missouri it's for sports. It's a smelly oh my drive. Gosh. That's all I know. I'm about to light up a bunch of middle school boys, and my car is not going to smell good afterwards. So. Well, that you yeah. you you know when puberty is hit by the Febreze. odors that come yeah. from friend. the uh, sports equipment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Febreze yeah. is your friend. Yeah. <laughs> we had when I was in boarding school, we 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 didn't really know how to do laundry, and so it was one point. Uh, and you didn't want to know. It was a particularly low point. At low ebb, I shall say, not part of the glory story, where um, a semester's worth of clothing was just in a huge pile, and instead of laundering them, we just did what you know fifteen-year-old boys do, and we just sprayed them down with Febreze and put them back on. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah. That's so gross. I thought you were say lit them on fire. Nope, <laughs> nope. We kept wearing those things. We they just kept stunk of Febreze. Um, all right. Well, speaking it. of uh, sort of times gone by, this is the, this is a fun one. Um, how old are you in your head? Oh, you know I how some, this. how old are you in your head? You know, uh, you know, some people say, oh, I'm, I'm, st- I'm still the same 18 year old I always was. Um, it, it's, this is a, an amazing article that appeared by Jennifer Senior in the Atlantic, uh, called the puzzling gap between how old you are and how old you think you are. But before I read it, when, when I was asked that question, I immediately said 37. I don't know why. I'm 43, but I immediately said 37. When I ask you, R.J. Heyman, how old are you in your head? What do you say? Really? I, I was like 28. I feel <laughs> that's, that's really, that sounds stupid to say, but like I can't believe I'm, what, four, 40, 46 years old? That just sounds completely insane. Yeah, wow. I sort of feel like I'm sort of a few years out of college trying to figure out my life. (laughs) Mm. Sarah, what about you? So my mom and I actually had a theory on this because we talked about this a lot. Um, We talked about both how old we... Yeah, we would talk about how old we felt, like gut level, and then how old we would think our mothers were. And she always thought of her mothers being 40. 
which is when my grandmother had my uncle, her last child. I always thought of my mother as being 40, which is when she had my brother. Uh-huh. And I always think I'm 28, which is when I had our first son. You think oh. 28 yeah. too. There we go. I do. Yeah, 100. When you said 20, I was like, oh my God. You yeah, look 28 today. I just want to well, say you've got a whole breakfast club, six and candles bronzer, thing, John Hughes I'm thing going right you guys, now. You know, hoop Milani, earrings, transparent glasses. Yeah, it's Luminoso. Yeah. Wait a second. Local drugstore. Wait a second. Are we busting you on a on a, on a broken resolution here? Is as as Sarah going to Madewell? <laughs> oh, well? What has oh, happened here? <laughs> makeup, not clothing. Oh, okay. Okay. Also, casuistry. It's at casuistry the Okay. Okay. I'm allowed right. some small pleasures in this life. Um, I accept yeah. that that your your answer has been accepted. You've passed muster. Thank you. You, you, I you are continuing it. I to. It. I was around a listener recently who I didn't realize was a listener, and I referenced not buying clothes, and he was like, "Oh, I know that. I'm trying to hold you accountable." <laughs> he was like, not serious though, was he? Was it Josh? He wasn't serious. Was it Josh? It was All right. Josh. Well, that's so interesting. Both of you think you're 28. Let yeah. me tell you, you ain't 28. Uh, this is what Jennifer Sr. writes. She says, so many people have an immediate, intuitive grasp of this highly abstract concept, a concept known as subjective age. It's bizarre if you think about it. Certainly most of us don't believe ourselves to be shorter or taller than we actually are. And we seem to have an awfully rough go of locating ourselves in time. The most inspired paper that she found on uh, about subjective age came from 2006. Uh, it was of uh, about 1,500 Danish participants. And what the two authors discovered is that adults over 40 perceive themselves to be, on average, about 20% younger than their actual age. Socioeconomic status, gender, education did not significantly alter the data. So why are we possessed of this urge to subtract? Certainly, lots of people consider aging a catastrophe, which, while true, seems to tell only a fraction of the story. You could just as well make a different case, that viewing yourself as younger is a form of optimism rather than denialism. It says that you envision many generative years ahead of you. I'm 35, wrote my friend Richard Primus, 53 in real life, and a constitutional law professor at the University of Michigan Law School. I think it's because that's the age I was when my major life questions, statuses, reached the resolutions slash conditions in which they've since remained. <clears throat> so, kind of like my answer, but more optimistically rendered, he continued, Medieval Christian theologians asked the intriguing question, how old are people in heaven? The dominant answer, what do you think it is? You 28. Two? No. 18. Come on, RJ, you're the biblical Older? guy. Older? I don't 33. know. 33. Oh, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, guys, yeah. funny uh, joke. Uh, partly because of, of the age. <laughs> medieval theologians. <laughs> partly because of the age of Jesus at crucifixion. But I think partly because probably. it feels like a kind of peak for the combined vigor maturity index. The vigor maturity index. Um. As she goes on to say, 30-year-olds should be aware that, for better or worse, the 50-year-old they're talking to thinks that they're roughly the same age as they are. Many responses, though, when people ask this question, how old do you feel you are, carries, carry with them a whiff of unexpected poignancy. Trauma sometimes played a role. One person was stuck at 32, unable to see themselves as any older than a sibling who'd died. The writer Molly Jong Fast replied that she's 19 because that's the age she got sober. Of course, not everyone I spoke with viewed themselves as younger. There were a few old souls. 
Something I would have once said about myself. I felt 40 at 10 when the gossip and clickishness of other little girls seemed not just cruel but dull. Yeah, I don't really know what to draw from this outside of the fact that we are, um, uh, the way that we perceive ourselves versus the, what the truth are barely seldom the same thing. Um, and the fact that people would think of themselves as, as 33 in heaven to me was kind of a beautiful thing. Um, Though I guess in the medieval times, a 33-year-old would have been like an old, like mm-hmm. right. would have felt much older than today. Right. A 33-year-old, what's that? That's the new 13. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what do you guys make of this article? Um, I mean, I think it's an interesting thing to think about. I, I do think that like trauma certainly aged me. You know, I think about like my peer, my quote-unquote peers now who are people who both parents are dead are typically like a lot older. Mm-hmm. Um, which is always an interesting thing to me. But, you know, the other thing I think about a lot right now as we're raising an adolescent uh, is the body mm. and how the body will move ahead of us even when we're not ready for it and how hard that is. Um, and we often talk about it, like, for the elderly or for us, right? Like, you know, um, my my tailbone started to hurt before I turned 40 and I couldn't figure out why, like I hadn't done anything to it, you know, but it was just like, Oh, you're getting older and you need to stretch more or whatever. We talk about that, but you know, it's really starts to happen so early, like seeing it up close, like, Mm. you know, kids aren't wanting to head into like this. Most of them at least are not, especially boys head into this like next season of what it means. And yet their bodies just, our bodies pull us into age. Mm. Yeah. Um, and how hard that can be. It's really hard. I think it's that really like, hard. you know, just go, go. I was just, um, uh, my, uh, exercise group just helped run a big, uh, race and like a uh, host, a big, uh, charity, uh, road race in town. And you just mm-hmm. watch some of the, clearly there's some people there that think they're younger than they are. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, then I, I'm the same person. I, I feel the same way. Cause like, I'm thinking like, I could do this, you know, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm still in decent shape, but then you get out there and you're like, Oh, my ligaments are not <laughs> what they once were. And I cannot, uh, I can feel a certain way in my head, but my body will mm. keep the score and it will my, tell me things. Yeah. RJ, as a, someone who is you know, this is. I almost don't want to ask RJ it's about this because RJ. he's he's found the fountain of youth. Because I mean, he's we, actually twenty eight. He's actually <laughs> twenty eight. That's the. I had Jackson when I was eight years old. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, feeling twenty eight is a combination of the th- sorts of things that I love to do. I, I still do feel kind of childlike in that sense. I love to go to the beach. I love to jump off cliffs. I love to play tennis and watch football and do kind of, you know, sometimes play video games and just kind of somewhat adolescent things. But it's also a little bit of judgment on myself because I think I thought when I was 46 years old, I would have maybe figured out life better or something, mm. you know, and be less anxious than I am all the time. A little, a little more peaceful, a little more disciplined, yeah. um, a little bit more intentional, something like that. To me, 28 feels like the edge of adulthood. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't, I don't really quite feel like I'm there yet. You know, I wish I felt more like an adult, but I, I don't. I sort of feel like I'm almost an adult, <laughs> and I wonder if I'll ever get there. Like if I was 37, like Dave Zoll, then I would have authored <laughs> numerous books and mm-hmm. uh, been a notable, you know, Christian media personality. 
but I'm only 28, so I'm still kind of muddling through (laughs) and, uh, you know, figuring it out. So, honestly. No, I think, you know, they always, I'm always thinking about how people who struggle with addiction uh, usually talk about you sort of stop maturing, you kind of stop aging when that, when that begins. So, um, you know, if you know someone who they look a lot older, but their, their, their their maturity index or whatever they call it here is, is really lagging behind. It's because they sort of lost 10 years where there, nothing was being let in. Um, and I always find that to be particularly tragic though. I guess the flip side of it is that you can maybe hold on to some kind of, um, you know, if, if you can, you can sort of be 18 again, um, even though you know it is, it's kind of the moral of a lot of those stories, isn't it? Like the vice versa and eighteen again um, uh, movies, you know, where they switch bodies. I think that like you basically find out that yes, there were great things about being eighteen, but you also forgot about all the terrible things about being eighteen. And people kind of big, you know, you you kind of get to the place of sort of acceptance that there's something good about every stage of life, though maybe the 40s, as we've talked about before, and that kind of like that, um, what is it, the U, U curve of happiness, the, the, mm-hmm. that tends to be the time when you have the most, you have so much uh, responsibility, and you're kind of, as we talked about, just running from one thing to the next, that it's very uh, hard to uh, to have the kind of peace and serenity that I think people have, or the excitement and energy they had when they were younger, or the peace and serenity they have when they're older. But I, well, and I think it's that reality of like when you're 20, 40 feels so far away. Yeah. But when you're 40, to me at least, especially recently, 60 feels very close. 60 feels very close, Sarah? It does. Oh, it my does. goodness. Wow. No, totally. Yeah, it does. I mean, it didn't used to, but right, like life circumstances for me means that like, you know, I think about retirement probably more than like anybody else in my whole life. Not that I want to retire, but just that I'm like, well, what are we going to do in retirement? Like, I mm. think, I think about those things. And I guess that's just a result of, of, you know, my experiences, but it's just, yeah. I mean, I think that a lot. And then I think, well, 60 is, is so close to 80 and most women in my family die, you know, somewhere in their nineties. And so, I mean, I think that you're basically dead already. You're yeah, basically I mean, dead already. I mean, I, but it is that like it it's, who is it? Alex large had the, the thing on his phone that'll send him a text. That, that says, we croak. Like, yeah. Yeah. You're going to die one day. And yes. or you're, yeah. And that, I mean, I think my brain automatically does that now. So, um, and I'm thankful for it. It, it makes me much more present. Um, Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Well, there there is that that I, I when it comes to aging, I always think that that I always uh, the biases that we have about our present self being the sort of our final self, you know, and then we look yeah. back on our per, per self ten years ago and we think, oh, that person, you know. For me, because I was writing for Mockingbird ten years ago, I can look back and I sort of think, oh, he was putting way too much out there, and um, be just sort of embarrassed. But we we don't yeah. we don't we forget that the version of us 10 years from now is going to look back on our present self, you know, the right. same way. I think that, I don't know. I wonder if that's, um, I think that's, that's, that's part and parcel of sort of the hubris of being alive. It, it's, it's, it, and it leads into the next 
article, this idea that we haven't completely figured out our present self and we're not going to continue learning into the future. It's a sort of end of history bias. And this is an article by one of one of my favorite writers, Jonathan Malazic, who wrote that wonderful book called uh, The End of Burnout. Um, he wrote this in Psych, uh, the website. I think it's a, it's, it's a psychology website. He says this, Our big problem is not misinformation. It's knowingness. He says, For the better part of a decade, scholars and writers across the globe have lamented the growing prevalence of misinformation, conspiracism, ideology, mistrust of experts, and echo chambers. These scourges make it much harder to solve any problem of politics, climate, or public health because they frustrate the search for a widely recognized truth. We know there is something wrong with the way that we know. Beneath the epistemological crisis is a deeper psychological one, the problem of knowingness. Knowingness, as the philosopher Jonathan Lear defines it, is a posture of always, quote, already knowing, of purporting to know the answers even before the question arises. When new facts come to light, the knowing person is unperturbed. You may be shocked, but they knew all along. Knowingness represents a particular danger for people whose job is to inform us. For instance, there's the pompous professor with the unassailable theory, or the physician who enters the examining room certain the patient's problems result from the condition the doctor happens to be an expert in. Knowingness can also take the form of ironic or cynical distance, uh, and it's why present-day culture wars are so boring. No one is trying to find out anything. There's no common agreement about the facts, and yet everyone acts as if all that matters of fact are already settled. Then he goes on to talk about how Oedipus Rex, and Sophocles, this is not actually a new phenomenon, but the, 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 the whole uh, play uh, in ancient Greece um, is really a problem of knowingness, that knowingness lies at the heart of Oedipus's, uh, Oedipus's <laughs> troubles. <laughs> what he doesn't know is that he doesn't know. I'll go on. Uh, Jonathan writes, Now, in the information age, we're all in a similar position. We like to think that all human knowledge is always at our fingertips, on a device in our pocket. The information is so near to us, we hardly even have to look it up. We as good as know it already, but in fact, the information age reveals how little we each already know. Knowingness, then, might be a way to manage the flood of information. There's so much we might know that perhaps we ought to know that it's often easier to just act as if we do. Knowingness may be so tempting because it does serve a social function. Think of our common words of sympathy. I know. I know what you mean. Claiming to already know someone's pain is an attempt to make them feel more understood and thus less alone. But social bonding is not the end all of discourse. We complain to our doctors and legislators not merely so they will sympathize with us, but in the hope that they will solve some of our problems. To overcome knowingness, we need a humbler and more curious stance toward knowledge. This does not mean we should pretend to ignorance. We don't have to suspend all our knowledge when making a judgment about a new situation. We should not discard either our well-established empirical knowledge or the theoretical orientations that help us make more sense of new information. We should, rather, recognize the limits of what we know and be curious about what we don't. Above all, we should give up the belief that we, unique among all who have lived, are always right. I think there's something to it. It's, I mean, it's he's kind of talking about self-righteousness or over-certainty, over-confidence. Um, and uh, it's one of the um, 
real strands I try to pull at in the the low anthropology book is that certainty, this idea that we are, can be completely have a thorough mastery of any particular subject, is is actually a fiction when it comes to finite creatures who are bound by time and space um, and context. And yet, um, to be alive today is to live amidst these warring certainties. It's to sort of breathe in the knowingness. And, um, you know, he, as he says, it's, it can be kind of a defense against the vast onslaught of information. I, I kind of can, I, I think there's something sympathetic in the way he describes it, but also we can recognize how corrosive this turns out to be. Uh, but what do you guys think about knowingness? You, you know more than I do. Have you guys seen everything ever all at once yet? No. You guys, what are you? Do? I, I mean, what are you? What are you doing with We're your time? I don't understand. <laughs> um, that's what that's what that movie really is all about. Hmm. It's about the, the 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 climax of the movie, which happens not towards the end, but you know, two thirds of the way through or so, is when the gentleman, um, gosh, what's his name, who played. Um, you know, Data and and uh, Short Round. You know who won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor? And anyway, yes, I can't remember his name. Tay 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 Huquan. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm gonna butcher his name. But he gives this little speech where he says, uh, "I know you're confused, and I'm confused too, and I I I don't understand what's going on, and I'm I'm it makes me scared, and somehow it feels like it's all my fault." Um, but he says, "But I know the only thing I know is that we have to be kind, especially when we have no idea what's going on." And that's exactly what this article is about, and I think it's what human existence is about, that we have no idea what's going on most of the time. We're totally confused. It makes us scared. It makes us feel guilty, like it's our fault. Um, and how do we handle that? And I do think that Christianity has a unique answer to that question, you know, going all the way back to the garden, right, where the temptation is eat the fruit and you will be like God, knowing, knowing, knowing good and evil, and that's what we want. We want to understand and know everything, but the reality is we don't. Mm. Um, but what Jesus says is, you don't have to know anything except me. You just have to know me, and I'll pull you through. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, you know, I, I actually preached on this a couple um, Sundays ago, and my associate brought to me a quote about Socrates, where I guess in ancient Greece they used to say, Socrates was the wisest man on the face of the earth because he knew that he knew nothing. Mm. And that that's sort of the beginning of of true wisdom. Um, and that is, yeah, as people who believe in Jesus, that's a place that we are, that's somewhere we're okay to live. We can handle that. We can handle not knowing anything because we know the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And the truth is not a, a, an abstract concept. It's a person. And that's, that's all we need. And so mm. we can kind of uh, admit our blindness mm. and our confusion and our fear and, and rest in his presence and provision in the midst of it so you gotta watch that movie guys it's we such do a, it's we such do. a good movie Kay who kwan is the is the guy's name i think you got thank it. you, you did get i was it close right. i was close data yeah sarah i mean i keep thinking about this idea of certainty and um how fascinating it is to me that we're so certain now in 2023 about all sorts of things, you know, uh, especially around the culture wars conversations about like, this is how it's supposed to be. Like either side you're on, you're certain, right? Mm. But then we look back to the way things were 10 years ago, five years ago, maybe even two years ago. Mm. And we're like, well, that was really bad. And we didn't know what we were doing. 
And it's fascinating to me how short that time is now. Like how people say, well, that was before me too, or that was before the pandemic or that was, you know, and you're just like, that wasn't that long ago. (laughs) And we're, and we were really certain then that we were doing the right thing. And now all that has changed. And, but now we're certain and now we know everything and now we're doing the right thing. And I mean, I, it is a fascinating sort of game we play of, of like self-righteousness and then blame, you know, like in a cycle of, of this is the way that we were, and this is how we are now and how we are now is superior to the way that we were when really we're just like all the same, (laughs) like we haven't really gotten that much better. Nothing's changed. Some things have gotten worse. Like it is just a fascinating Mm. kind of game we play Right. In terms of, of, of time actually. And, and in terms of, of what we actually know. And I do think there's some peace in getting older and realizing how little we know and making more room for silence and uncertainty in a way that like, I certainly didn't have the maturity level to do before now. Um, but also like, You know, I used to be really hard on myself because I didn't learn anything in seminary. And as much as I make jokes about Yale, um, I know that I could have done more and learned more. Right. And, and, but I'm, I just wasn't like, I was so focused on my personal life, which obviously was really busy with having a kid and being married that I just kind of did what I needed to do to get through. And I've kind of harangued myself then like, well now, like, you need to read all the books you didn't read and you need to do these deep dives into all these other topics. And you you, like, you're not one of those priests. And I don't mean RJ to be clear. RJ knows the Bible. That's not what we do at Yale. And nothing else. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing else. Exactly. RJ knows the Bible and nothing else. Um, you know, I, I just, I don't know a lot of different theological practices. And, um, since I have graduated, I felt panic at certain moments about what do I not know? And, you know, there's like uh, as many theologies as there are theologians on the planet, it seems. And Mm. I can always feel like I'm behind, especially when I have conversations with colleagues. Um, But I think there is a thing about knowingness for me now that's become like, especially like when it comes to preaching and the gospel and people's pain Mm -hmm. is like, I actually know that to be true. Like, and Mm. might it inform my theology in different ways if I read more (laughs) um, (laughs) theological books instead of uh, historical fiction about princesses? Probably, but but also like... Not necessarily. Not necessarily. (laughs) I don't know. And um, yeah, I just, I think there's a thing about knowing everything there's a way in which I wonder if we can just say this is what I know to be true and and I can listen and I can hear outside of that but also I don't have to know everything I don't know does that make sense I don't know much but I know how to live that's uh what were you about to say RJ a few different things. I mean, I, I have also not read a ton of theology books or, you know, commentaries, things like that. But I do, I probably have read, probably read more than you have, Sarah. You've definitely read more than me. And yeah. I always, like you know, you always take it with a grain of salt. 
You know, I, I think there was a point um, fairly early on, although not as early on as I would have liked, when I realized that just because two people were Christians didn't mean that they agreed. You know, mm-hmm. that even Christians who, like, know Jesus, love Jesus, are doing the best they can, um, have different perspectives. And, like, yeah. that's okay. And actually, it reminds me, Sarah, when I was getting ready to go to seminary, I talked to a bunch of friends who attended various seminaries. And I remember one of them said to me, you know, RJ, I feel like coming out of X seminary, I can tell you what Calvin thought, I can tell you what Bart thought, I can tell you what Tillich thought, I'm not sure I can tell you what I think. Mm. Um, and in some ways, that's kind of the role of seminary, but I also honestly was probably looking for a little bit more clarity than that, you know, something not just to shake me up, but also to, to, to give me a, a firmer foundation. And not to say I know everything, because I certainly don't. I, I think this also ties into a little bit of a buzzword, I don't know if this is ministry or other other places, but um, the need to always be teachable, to be oh, teachable, yeah. to be mm-hmm. willing to learn, to admit that you're wrong, yeah. um, to be open to new information. Um, and I think, honestly, that's a real—that's kind of a fruit of grace. That's a fruit of yeah. the gospel, right? 100%. It's like, I'm a sinner, I don't know much, I'm doing the best I can, and— um, and I guess that also reminds me, you know, I talked a little while ago about George Buttrick and this book on preaching that he wrote, or sort of a collection of essays he wrote about preaching. He was a major American preacher in New York City in the middle of the 20th century who, like, converted Eugene Peterson type guy. Mm. Yeah. Um, but he said, you know, if you read in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, the disciples, the apostles, never asked themselves the question, what did Jesus do or what would Jesus do? they always said, what is Jesus doing right now? Mm. Because Jesus was still present with them by the power of the Spirit. That's so good. And that's that's a unique approach that Christians have, right? It's like, do we have ethics? We do. Do you have to go back and look? You do. Do you want to test things? You do. But we do actually believe that we have the Holy Spirit living in us, working through us. And as Jesus said to his disciples, like when you come before you know, magistrates and judges, and don't be nervous about what you're going to say, because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. Mm. And I think that also applies to knowingness and not knowingness, you know? Um, and that's just a therapeutic thing, too, right? That when you get anxious about the future, a, ther- a good therapist will tell you, um, can you trust your future self to figure that out? Mm. You know? And I would say, not just can you trust your future self, but can you trust God? <laughs> that, yeah. that, that when you need the resources to figure out that particular thing that you're so anxious about, you'll have them, yeah. and just try to live one day at a time, which is another thing Jesus says, right? Every day has enough trouble of its own. So, well, I, Yeah, I, I was thinking um, two things. I, I, I think that this, you're right, the word teachable, I'd never heard that before I entered Christian ministry circles, and I, kn- I know what it what it means. It means basically, are you open to anything, <laughs> or do you feel like as a 22-year-old, you already know everything? Right. And yes, I think you do. That that's, that's yes, not you do. Just, that's <laughs> certainly like endemic to yeah. tw- 22-year-old, let's face it, dudes who are kind of like on, you know, on really full not of conviction and Not just dudes. 22-year-olds in general know everything. Um, I was very humble as a 22-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> what, what happened? <laughs> What what happened? Yeah, what happened? <laughs> but I I realized that that word teachable really just means are you kind of open to uh, kind of uh, you know the world at all at this mm-hmm. point, and you know it can go too far and people become overly malleable or even gullible. But I I think that there is something. I I I hope to 
think, I would like to think that even at 43, I'm still a little teachable. That's what I want to be. Some of this gets back also to what we talked about last episode with the Simeon stuff about the kind of information, uh, the Christian information approach to life and to change and to behavior. And is life, is it just a matter of me passing on the right knowledge to you? Um, I was dealing with a situation with uh, someone who was caught in some addiction and uh, you know, you just watch as you tell the person very clearly over and over what they are doing that is wrong. And uh, I think it's something in the AA, it says like that, that moves the needle almost not at all. Um, and <laughs> I always, I always think about the sort of uh, impotence of information or of knowing when it comes to a lot of the most important things. And when he talks about... Oh, that's so true, like uh, babies... Yeah. I mean, until <laughs> until you actually have the baby, all of that information right. is like, okay, great. It's just, it's all about selves, like basically pacifying your own anxieties. And he says that knowingness in a way is serving that purpose for, for a world in which we're just flooded with information. I, I think that's the high point of this article in a way, a sort of sympathy for people who are caught up in this uh, oppressive... Uh, trading of, of certainties. But I, I do think there is one thing we can know for certain, and that's that we don't know. I mean, it, what is the, for crying out loud, First Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. Now, what a, like, a crazy yes. group of sort oh. of of, of the man who loves God, love is sort of primary, so but great. then is, and, and it's not only, you know, God, no, then you are known by God. And I think yeah. that that's it's just, not what you know, it's who you know, or who you're known by, who you're yeah. known by. And yeah. I, I also think of like in, in relationships, in any kind of relationships, it, it, I wish it weren't the case, but it often feels like there is a tension between being right and being loving, being right. And we're insisting on, on rightness versus that's marriage. Yeah, and if anything, you could say it's wrong to insist on right. You know, to, yeah. to, it's it's there's something there's a deeper knowledge, a deeper wisdom, a deeper love, frankly, deeper magic, right? And that's the um, so knowingness. I, I I love what he says. We should but give Dave, up the belief. What about that we, speaking the truth in love, Dave? What about oh, speaking right. the truth in love, or as your father said, speaking falsehood in hate? <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually speaking. It's actually speaking falsehood in hate. Well, I was I was thinking of also about I was listening to a wonderful sermon that Ethan Richardson, you know, our former magazine editor, he preached. He was in uh, at a Lenten series in in uh, Alabama, and he preached about. The wheat and the tares, and it's all about sort of waiting. Totally. You don't know. You are not the one to know yeah. to separate the wheat and the tares. No. And like that is infuriating because yeah. you want to say, actually, I do know, um, and I am not in the tares, you know, and, and or that person is and this person isn't. And it's, it's sort of the worst gardening advice of all time is to sort of, oh, just let the weeds grow. And yet that seems to be what Jesus says. There's like a knowingness is not really in the human job description, right? I find that to kind of be free, freeing, even I though to- yes. I still struggle to always feel like I'm right. <laughs> you know? Well, there's no great pressure to know everything, especially when you're in a position of leadership or authority or a parent sometimes. It's like you're supposed to know, you ought to know, and it's like, uh, where, where does it say that in the Bible? I don't know. It says <laughs> I need to trust and be faithful, and it reminds me, have I said before here, um, someone told me recently what John Stott, 
great sort of English, you know, now deceased evangelical said once, when someone asked him, you know, um, you know, who, who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? And what about all the people who don't believe? And, and he said, look, I'm in, I'm in sales, not management, you know, which I think is just a great way to put it, right? You know, yeah. that's not my call. Yeah. Um, I'm just here to proclaim the good news and, um, you know, God, God will figure it out in the end. Kind of the rubber meets the road on all of this in the next article, which is from the Wall Street Journal, reviewed a new book called 70 Times 7, A True Story of Murder and Mercy. And it centers on a horrific crime that I actually remember from when I was a kid. On May 14, 1985, in Gary, Indiana, a 78-year-old retired Bible teacher named Ruth Pelkey was killed during a home invasion by four teenage girls who fled with her car and $10. Now, this is oh, gruesome, so God. just, uh, you know, mute it if you don't want to hear the details. Um, Paula Cooper, who stabbed Pelkey more than 30 times with a butcher knife, was sentenced to death the following year, becoming at age 16 the youngest person then on death row in America. She was 15 at the time of the homicide. Now, Alex Marr, uh, she's a great journalist who wrote this book. Uh, the, the Wall Street Journal, Barbara Spindell is reviewing it for the Wall Street Journal. She says her, her riveting book begins, however, with another appalling act of violence six years earlier. The girl, Paula Cooper's erratic, alcoholic mother, made a plan to kill herself along with Paula and her older sister via carbon monoxide poisoning in their home's garage. They all survived... And in the years leading up to the Pelkey's murder, Cooper, whose father beat her frequently and severely, cycled in and out of foster care and juvenile detention. By opening 70 times 7 with the failed murder-suicide rather than with the attack on Pelkey, Miss Marr seems to suggest that Cooper's victimization at the hands of her parents and a system that did little to help her ought to shock the conscience just as much as the murder itself. The author uses the case to explore larger issues of justice, retribution, and forgiveness. Pelkey was white, and four the four defendants were black. Before pursuing capital punishment for Cooper, who was tried as an adult, the lawyer, the white lawyer, consulted with Gary's most prominent black ministers. He received their tacit approval. Their sympathies were with the devout victim, not with the perpetrators. Pelkey's devastated family also supported the maximum penalty. But Cooper's story, as this was a 15-year-old girl sentenced to, the, uh, to be executed, began to spark international outrage, particularly in Italy, where more than 2 million people eventually signed petitions demanding that her life be spared. After his 1987 visit to the United States, Pope John Paul II, through a spokesperson, expressed hope that Cooper's death sentence would be lifted. Cooper's biggest advocate, however, turned out to be an unlikely one the victim's grandson. Mm. One night at work at a Gary steel mill, Bill Pelkey had a vision of his grandmother crying and believed that she was crying for Paula Cooper. He became convinced that she, quote, would not want this girl to be killed in her name. Turning to his Bible for guidance, Pelkey was drawn to a passage in the Gospel of Matthew that lends the book its title. Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus responds, I tell you not seven times, but seventy times seven. Pelkey absorbed that teaching wholly and began a long correspondence with Cooper. They eventually exchanged some 200 letters and later around a thousand emails, and he visited her in prison 14 times. 
To the dismay of most of his relatives, Pelkey publicly called for the uh, commuting of her death sentence. Devoting himself to death penalty abolitionism, he traveled the country to speak about his revelation, joining a group of activists who, in the author's words, have radical sympathy for those who have committed horrific crimes. Now, one of the things I think it, 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 this, this uh, yes, horrific story about the limits of mercy, um, the, the Wall Street Journal, Barbara Splendell goes on to talk about it. It was a question of, um, do we believe anyone can be rehabilitated if a 15-year-old can be sentenced to death? Like, um, and, and if they are not, if it's not possible to rehabilitate someone who's that young, then can, what, what are we actually doing with the justice system? And it was, it's, a, it's a fascinating story, but it's also a fascinating story about grace. I mean, it's about someone who, on the basis of Christian conviction, decides to advocate for the woman who murdered his grandmother um, across all kinds of lines, and um, only because of this sort of radical injunction from Jesus, which I think is just so counterintuitive. It's, it's, it's inconvenient, it's difficult, but it's also inspiring and beautiful, because a, a knowingness, I, it does get into my mind when it comes to passing definitive judgment, and I know the criminal justice system needs to exist to prevent people from doing terrible things. However, the kind of knowingness that could result in sentencing a 15-year-old to be executed, um, mm. there's no. Um, it, it you can see how iron those ironclad judgments, which I just simply don't believe are open to uh, flawed human beings. Um, uh, I guess I see the interplay going in this direction, where he basically said forgiveness is still an option here, as well as the fact that we don't know definitively what this woman could become in the next sixty-five years. I mean, Jesus, I think would say that even if she didn't become something, you know, rehabilitated, God's love does not somehow uh, be invalidated. But what do you think about this? So this is a true crime before there was true crime, and it sounds like a fascinating book. So was she, did, was she put to death? Let me look that up while we're talking. I mean, it makes you, again, we've talked about miracles quite a bit the last few episodes, and this vision was a heavenly vision mm-hmm. of his grandmother, right, crying, like that's, that's a, a direct act of the Holy Spirit intervening. Um, you know, he as the grandson is uniquely positioned to offer grace, right? I think it's incredibly dangerous to suggest that someone else who suffered that kind of loss and violation um, should show that kind of grace. I think that's something they only need to, they can only come to themselves. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder how the rest of his family feels about it. <laughs> yeah, they were very upset. And by the way, her sentence was reduced to life imprisonment. And then she was let out in uh, nineteen in 2013. She was 43. and But unfortunately, two years later, she took her, took her life. Jesus. That's not, that's not surprising. I mean, what it's is not this? surprising because the other thing is like, you know, it's it becomes its own punishment, right? Like what she did becomes its own punishment, and um, and I mean, to that's f- forgive oneself is is the, is the deepest miracle of all. You might say. I mean, I could believe God forgives me sooner than I can believe that I forgive myself. I right? think that is like incredible. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I mean, I think that's such a difficult thing to do. Um, you know, I've talked about this here before, but we 
you know, there's similar dynamics in my family, especially initially where it was like, you know, we're, we're going to seek the greatest vengeance for the deaths of my parents. And Mm. it was so merciful to me that like really early on, it was like this like wall of anger and fury and retribution. And then I was like staring at it. And then there was just this like little pinhole of light. And I was like, I, I need to fit through that. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I, I think there's just an element of, of, yeah, it's harder. I mean, and everybody says that, oh, it's so hard to forgive and it's so hard to show grace and it is, but it's like such a relief Mm. because it's so much harder to like justify some causing someone else pain because they caused you pain. Like that's just a burden. to carry that anger, to carry it's that totally. resentment. I mean, what do we say all the time, right? Uh, refusing to forgive is uh, drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. Yeah, yeah. You know? now, now they're, they're, yeah. Anyway, tough. So, um, I mean, I think this is. I think this is incredible. It's an incredible story. RJ, what were you about to say? Well, the other the other side of that is, you know. These girls did an awful thing, and she was in an incredibly deep pain, and she had an incredibly difficult life, and at the same time, that incredibly difficult life and her pain and her own abuse led her to do a horrible thing that you would never want her to visit on anyone else, right? right? So how do you balance, and that's not our call, right, But, but the need to forgive and protect, you know, innocent, uh, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. <laughs> you know, whatever mm-hmm. that, whatever that means. Jesus says that too. Um, but do you ever wonder if, if, because I, I do think it's very important to hear the circumstances in which this young woman, Paula Cooper, was raised. I think that that 100%. does give me yes. compassion. It does, in no words, no way do I think it makes what she did any less horrific but it does make me uh you know um pause and make me even sadder and feel more deeply um i I think there can be a a tendency to by hearing that it somehow lets her off the hook for what she did and i don't i don't think that's 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 clearly not true but it does humanize the whole thing and add to it it's not just a devil agent uh you know going against a perfect person you know it's um, we can still view what she did as wrong while also seeing her as the product of uh, enormously uh, painful and broken and, you know, cycles of, 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 of generational sin, I guess you could yeah. say. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of when I've done uh, women's prison ministry before. Mm. Um, if you spend any time at all with any population of women who are in prison, um, they are somehow there like the story of their lives, they're somehow there uh, because they were raped. Like oh, it's yeah. it's a part of their story is children or it's a part of their story as adults and maybe they attacked and murdered the person who raped them. It's, it's it, or, or the other thing, it's um, because their children have been assaulted by a man and they've mm. gone after that man. I mean, it's it's different for women. Mm. I will say that too. I mean, I you know, and I don't want to discount men who have trouble in their childhoods and stuff, but usually when we see something like this, there is there's a tremendous amount, something this violent, there's a tremendous amount of pain there. And I just remember being daunted by every single female prisoner I talked to had 
just a horrific, horrific experience in her past that had sort of led her up into this moment. Mm. I, I, you know, I, I gotta say though, I was listening to our my ex, my exercise group F three. We sort of help out with a rehabilitation. Soapbox. Okay, so box. We we help lead workouts for these guys who are um, coming out of prison. And oh, uh, cool. wow. the, the man who's the head of it is called the Bridge Ministry here. He's a um, a, a guy who who who's had been through everything you could possibly imagine and has seen up front uh, 30 years worth of incarcerated men and sort of rehabilitation. And he would say, and, and he was asked to address like the recent, there's been a lot of gun violence everywhere in the country, but in Charlottesville where we are in, there's been a number of shootings and they've, they're, they've been mostly within the black community and it's been extremely upsetting for the, and, and he was sort of called upon as, as a black man himself. And Brian Stevenson was just here to talk and we're, we're, we're really trying to, listen you know and he 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 said something where he he feels like all of the men that come through his program uh with almost very few exceptions had didn't have a father like mm-hmm. and he said that they uh they were never um had any kind of role model to model respect towards women and mm-hmm. towards uh towards other men and, and so towards themselves towards themselves know? and I it mean, was this it was this cycle that he was not trying to like say that this somehow makes it all right for right. young men to shoot each other in our streets but he did he did he did come at it from a point of view of compassion and like let's do what we can in his he was basically saying because all their dads were locked up for drug offenses in the 80s mm-hmm. and so now that and that like created three generations of young men who had no uh, male role models and you know I know that whenever you're talking about systemic uh, you know um Injustice or crime, you know, as it, as it relates to race and and poverty and socioeconomics, it's unbelievably complicated. I don't mean to reduce it, but he, who's been there a lot more than I have, said something about this the cycle because it feels like a curse. You know, I, I have to use the mm. biblical words. It feels like a curse, and so to break out of that curse involves a miracle. And I was just listening to Brian Stevens talk about basically the miracle is mercy, mercy for people who've done terror. The only way to break the cycle is not it's a somehow withhold retribution from people who've done terrible things and that is that's the only hope for all of us ultimately i think but stevenson sees it as a you know i'm talking about the guy who wrote the book just mercy he sees it as uh the only hope he has for actual offenders can i i have to just there's something that always drives me crazy about these conversations um and i know it's the word we always use but i hate when people say Oh, it's so hard for kids because they didn't have a role model. Mm. That's not it. It's not a role model. Because they have role models. No one models. loved them. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. The No, the issue, I think, is just, like, rejection. Like, mm. and it's not that, like, their, you know, parents chose not to parent them. It's, it's the feeling of rejection, right? It's like your life and what you did became, took you away from me. And maybe I wasn't as valued. Like, I think we underestimate the way that kids just see things in their world and blame it on themselves, Mm. right? Like, wasn't I enough that you didn't have to do these things? Like, I just, it's so much, it's so much deeper and more painful than they just didn't have role models. Yeah, it's not that they, what you're saying is that it's not that they needed a role model. They could have had a lousy person as long as they were there, right? Right, yes, yes, a warm body who tucks you in at night. To not have that, I mean is a devastating thing as a child. The person who's actually really good on this, surprisingly, is um, 
Well, anyway, the, Sam Harris, who's like a vehement anti-Christian atheist, but he wrote uh -huh. a little book called Free Will, uh -huh. where he says, you know, all the neuroscience shows us that um, basically people aren't as free as we think they are, you know, which is a very Christian idea. And if mm. that's true, if it's true that people are kind of the product of their genetics and their experience, um, we need to be a lot more merciful than we are. Um, yeah. And I was really, I was, I, I sort of want to, I think I did write him actually. I was like, I think I, I tweeted him. I was like, Sam, I read your book. I totally agree. You might be a Christian. <laughs> uh, sure <laughs> he, he never got that. back to me. Yeah, yeah he never got back Weird. to me. Yeah. Did you send him a Bible? I did. I should have. He probably doesn't that have a copy of our day. I'll bet he does, actually. Well, I bet no, I'm he kidding. does. He probably does. But it's not yeah. just that we're products of our past. We're in. Yeah. We're in bondage to these things. Like we're yes. we're actually enslaved in some in some very real sense and in, in, in a need of deliverance and and like kind of saving. I think because that's it's a stronger. I want I want to because in in certainly in low anthropology, I tried to break say that like. People are doubled over themselves. We're all so um, uh, um, just captive. We're captive to uh, emotions that we that are larger than we are, and to histories that are larger than we are, and fears that are larger than we are. And our hope has to be in some kind of um, saving agent. I think. Yeah. Um, or epigenetics, or if it's, right? And if it's not divine, generational trauma, then it's yeah. got to be some kind of uh, you know. There, there are such things as people who just come in and advocate for you, even if you don't deserve it. Um, now, I want to the last final t topic today is something from our website. You know, I, I we we forwarded it around, but a couple of weeks ago, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff um, had written something very uh, powerful uh, for their uh, website. For their, their, these are social scientists talking about mental health uh, in among sort of especially the difference between uh, the, f the fall off of mental health among progressive young women and how it happened before it the, all the sciences shows that it, it sort of tanked before it did with young men or with their sort of conservative counterparts and what would the reason what what you know, easy, easy, easy subject. <laughs> Continue. Like, no, just what, what they said was Danger interesting Will to Robinson. me. You know what? <laughs> RJ, you're not young, so. Lukianov had uh, Lukianov had struggled all his life with serious depression, and what had helped him was CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, which many of us have have benefited from. And when we talk about therapy, oftentimes we're talking about a form of that. Um. And he had said, because he was an academic living in the sort of academic world, which was breathing in these, these sort of this air, he said, if certain patterns of thinking had become more prominent in sort of blue spaces that incline people toward mental illness, and this is what he said, he said, in CBT, you learn to recognize when your ruminations and automatic thinking patterns exemplify one or more of about a dozen cognitive distortions, such as catastrophizing, black and white thinking, fortune telling, or emotional reasoning. Thinking in these ways causes depression as well as being a symptom of depression. Breaking out of these painful distortions is a cure for depression. And he goes on, he says, well, if you allow a person to speak uh, on campus and the idea is that, you would, you're, that that person is harming me or putting my life in danger, he would say that is a form of catastrophizing because it tends to disempower people by putting all their, the sort of someone else in charge of your life. Now, um, 
put that aside, okay? Think about academics. You know, I, some of us have, have watched some of this play out. I, I don't know. But I do know how it works out in the church. And that's what the, our, our writer, Anthony Robertson, who's a, uh, a, um, a Methodist minister, he says, uh, I wondered if there's some crossover to all this in churches. This is what he says. He says, in my more liberal and progressive church context, he's in the main line, as most of us are, there's a lot of emphasis on the problems of the world and on what you should be doing about it which begins to sound a lot like law, not gospel. It's all about what you should do or feel or think. If God is in the picture, it's all about what God needs us to do, demands that we do. There's little emphasis on what God has done or is doing on our behalf or on God's capacity to bring good out of or in the face of evil. So it's kind of all on us. And he says this, Is it possible that under the sway of the law, our churches are practicing a kind of reverse CBT? Think about it. The law, in its worst forms, gives us this constant message. It's never enough. You're never enough. You have to do more. You must try harder. There is no race, no grace for you or for anyone else who doesn't measure up. It's not about what God in Christ has done for us, but about what we must do for God. Do enough and God will love you, maybe. This is what Paul meant when he said the law brings wrath. He says this, I've been in church services where people do manage to get into praising God for God's mercy, for changes in lives, for recovery. But inevitably, or so it seems in my context, someone will rise up and say, I just think it's awful all your praise and carrying on when there are children in our community who go to bed hungry at night, or when the earth's climate has been destroyed by us. By the end of such a worship service, people are often overwhelmed by unendurable responsibility to fix the world and to be much better people. Sermons in such churches are often what some of us in the trade refer to as lettuce sermons. That is, they end with a lot of let us go forth and bring peace to the world. Let us go forth determined to end this or that crisis. Let us be more kind and generous. I remember a young woman who thanked me for a sermon. She was a school teacher and mother of small children. Up to her eyeballs in work and demand, she said, thank you. I don't need to be reminded every Sunday of my responsibilities. They are staring me in the face. <laughs> what I do need is to be reminded every Sunday that is the grace of God. Now, I think what's a little, the only thing ironic here is that Anthony Robinson is describing what happens in conservative churches just as much as sort of liberal churches. It's all just a form of law, kind of it's all on us to either become more holy personally more pious, more pure, or be the church, or to change the world. We talked about it this the last little bit, but in each case, it we are kind of um, uh, it's a kind of a catastrophizing burden, is what he's saying, without any hope of help. And I, I don't, I, f- I find this somewhat convincing, um, but. Because this, by the way, the art, the name of this article is the cognitive distortions of legalistic preaching, and as we know, legalistic preaching can take many different forms. Um, any any thoughts on all this? I mean, I, I'm fascinated by this idea that um, we're actually sort of making people unwell from the pulpit, and and I, I mean, I I think that's true. Honestly, I think that's, and I think because people can choose not to go to church now, um, I think that has got to impact it, right? Because, you know, that example he gave of the mom is, you know, um, you piss off young mothers, <laughs> your church is not going to make it. Like, we're, you know, I mean, I'm not a young mother anymore, but we're, we're definitely the driving force for getting to church. And, um, 
And by the same token, if you can encourage them and remind them that how, um, how they are enough, even if they walk in feeling like absolute failures, um, that's a huge blessing and gift. You know, I, the thing it makes me think of, though, is what RJ said earlier about, like, it's not what would Jesus do, it's what is Jesus doing. Mm. And it just totally, and I don't know how people do Christianity this way. I really don't. And I have a lot of friends who do Christianity this way, but I'm just baffled by it because the last thing I need in my life is another place for harsh, binary, catastrophic thinking. <laughs> like, I have that everywhere. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you don't everywhere. do this, this is going to happen. And because you're yeah, not doing this, that, everything this will is blow what's up. happening. If you're not yes. outraged, you're not paying attention. Exactly. Like, that's everywhere right now. And it's like the softness of Jesus. Ugh is such a relief and like i don't it's the only way i can do it you know what i mean mm -hmm. i just i know i used to drive my mom crazy because when we gone like there, there were different trips we took and i remember we we uh we were visiting this church in the summer i'm not gonna say where it was and this gentleman was preaching and it was like they were recognizing their town's firefighters that day. And he was like, you know, these firefighters are just like Jesus. And I was like, what? Like, I was just like hyperventilating in the pew. And my mom's like, this is such a nice sermon. Why do you have to ruin every church experience for me? And I'm just like, I'm just sitting there like, you know, these guys are assholes because they're people. Why are we saying they're Jesus? Like, my husband used to be a firefighter. Like, what are you doing? You know, it's just, it for me, it just so far misses the mark. And unfortunately, um, it's a lot of preaching in, in mainline traditions. And David, you say it's a lot of preaching in, you know, non-denominational churches just from the conservative vantage point. Yeah. It's all what I, so. I've come to call it instead of legalistic preaching, because I think that's such a, it's a default. And I, I mean, I, I do yeah. think we preach the law because we want things to change and we want to change yeah. other people. And we want to perpetuate the institution and all this stuff. I've started to call it project Christianity. It's like your Christianity mm -hmm. is becomes your big project for the world or for yourself. And yeah. it's just this, it's another, it's your main project in life. Like, so uh, my, my, this faith that I'm sort of, it's like a big block that I'm chipping away at all the time and, and, and to kind of get better and, 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 and in order to change change the world or myself it's it's a form of project christianity and it ultimately Someday is I'll not be 37 it's 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 understood as faith as a as a yeah as, as faith <laughs> is, is is a project for the world or for myself rather than as a refuge and um as as my last resort or as my only hope um which i think is does preach to people who feel like they're surrounded by not only catastrophic thinking but actual catastrophe right i mean it's it's RJ, what do you think? What I found too is that it, to the degree that I attempt to preach the gospel and have any success at it, I feel like you can kind of have your cake and eat it too, because I find you can't preach the gospel without talking about sin and about pain and about reality. And I find that the Holy Spirit convicts people, even if I don't. You right. know, like when we talked about the raising of Lazarus recently, um, I just talked a little bit about grief and about pain and about um, being with people in their pain and their grief. And someone came up to me after the service who had lost um, someone very dear to them, um, you know, in the pretty f fairly recent future. 
uh, and they said, you know, RJ, I, I've seen other people who um, are also in pain. And honestly, I didn't really want to go there because I just, I, I kind of want to get past that. I want to get over it. Mm-hmm. And I realized in your sermon that maybe they need me right now. Maybe I need to reach out to them and be a friend to them. Mm-hmm. Or I preached a sermon about um, kind of impatience and perfectionism. And this woman came up to me and she said, man, you, you got me between the eyes, <laughs> you know? Now I went on to talk about God delivering us in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our perfection, he, you know, in the midst of waiting, whatever it might be, you know, hopefully to suffer, suffer some relief. But I find, guess what? The Holy Spirit actually is convicting people behind the scenes, even if... You, you, you don't need to hammer someone over the head, mm. you know? Just talk about reality, um, and people will hear what Jesus needs them to hear. It's the Holy Spirit doing something there. I always Let's hope. Totally. It's not like it's just a bunch of babble. And it backfires. I mean, I just think it backfires if if we think we're the ones doing the convicting. Like, I don't actually think that's what we're called to do. I, I, I really believe in preaching. Like, we're just called to tell the story and then to sit down. And then whatever God does with that is what God does, does with that. Like, I think we ruin it when we try to convict people. Yeah, yes. specific things. I mean, I think I, I do think the experience of conviction... Is a is a good thing, but I just don't think it's the sp- oh, it's not the, the speaking the truth in love thing. It's it's really it's, but com- convicting people is not our business, yeah. David's all. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the business of the Holy Spirit. Like yes. you're you're totally right. I always love that line, by the way, RJ, about Lazarus. It's like Jesus had to step into his grave before he could call him out of it. I, I like that that he doesn't just call him out of it. He actually. I just can't believe he made them wait two days. He's like, oh, Lazarus is dying. I'm just going to chill for a couple days. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, there's some sports on. I'm a little tired. I'm going to kind of hang out. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Get your butt uh, over here now. Jesus. Anyway. I just love, and I preach this to my college students, who, of course, are all in various stages of, like, the unknown future. And um, that's why, I mean, this thing, it's going to stay with me, what you said, like, what is Jesus doing? It's going to stay with me. Because I was like, you know, when we think about ourselves in the future, we always think about ourselves alone. Mm-hmm. you know and we forget that god is with us jesus is guiding us is with us the holy spirit is moving in our lives in the future as much as as that's happening now it's not a pure ca- catastrophe without god is what you're saying it's like god yeah. god goes with us jesus is there a hundred percent yeah just and it's just you know now. it's yeah and just yeah i mean the lazarus story is incredible well how are you guys what do you like the last sort of just note here what what is um holy we cold for you um what do you have you preached to your students already, Sarah? Uh, what do you? Um, yeah, so no, I'll I'll preach to them on Monday night. So we'll do Palm Sunday on Monday night. I'm really encouraging my students to do the um, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday services here at Palmer Church because mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a good place for them, and it uh, they can do it certainly on a grand scale that I can't. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I don't have a lot of kids that grew up in the Episcopal Church, so. Mm. Um, it's interesting to kind of navigate this. This is like where we get our weirdest, you know. RJ, what's your gonna? How what are you gonna tell your congregation? Uh, this Sunday, I think the line I'm really gonna zero in on is that I think it's great. I think it's Alexander Solzhenitsyn who said, you know, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Mm. And to me, that's always the message of Palm Sunday: um, is that the same voices who cry out. Hosanna, when they think that Jesus is everything they think they want and think they need, are the same ones who cry, crucify him when he doesn't deliver, and how that's us. And it's sort of, it's a commentary on the 
general um, fickleness of the human heart, uh, the disastrousness of the human experience, or human experiment, I should say, and, and experience, um, our inability to know anything, um, and God's incredible love and grace in the midst of it, and that um, there's, only, there's only one person who did not have a divided heart, um, and he died on a cross, you know, 2,000 years ago for all of us, and that's mm. our only hope. So I think that's the direction I'm going to go. I'll, I'll follow Maybe. you in that direction. That's great. I was going to talk okay, about good. expectation and how this we we force such mm. triumphalistic mm. expectations on God and 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 we never yes, even, we never really even seek one. to 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 ask the question what is what is what is what is what is God actually doing right now rather than yes. I'm going to tell God what God needs to do I know what he should be doing <laughs> and he needs to keep riding and certainly get off that donkey I mean get, get, please yeah, find a better steed <laughs> Here's a segue a pope mobile. Anyway, well, you guys, I hope it goes well for you in your respective spots, and all the listeners out there. Happy, happy Easter, um, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll get back to you afterward. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll w- when I see you next, I will be thirty-three and uh, looking like RJ. That's uh, I think. I hope to be that old as well. <laughs> I'm going to mature five years in the next two I'll weeks. I'll be sixty. You'll be. <laughs> you're, you're basically so eighty right now, Sarah. Yeah. In my heart. <laughs> All right, you guys. God bless. Blessed right. Holy Week. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. <laughs>